So a few years ago, I decided I was going to finish up my degree because I wanted to get accepted into seminary and they wouldn't let me in unless I had my undergrad finished. So I signed up to get everything done as quick as possible. I just wanted to expedite the thing. So I'm taking, you know, I'm, I'm driving out to Ashland four or five times a week, just trying to get this finished. And there's a group of other people who had the same train of thought. They just wanted to get it done. So you end up having a lot of classes with the same people. There's a lot of time before class and after class, and even in dialogue with professors to really get to know people well. You get to know about all their history, their, their career aspirations. You get to know their kids' names. You get to know their political views, their spiritual views. You get to hear about pretty much everything going on in their life, like a coworker or anyone else. You get to just know about them. And I love that. I love getting to talk with people, getting to know people, getting to figure out what, what gets them excited, what, what they want to do, all that sort of stuff. So I'm in this class, and there's one particular person that I've had almost every class with. Like, she's getting the same exact degree as me. We're, we're basically in every class together, and her name is Eve. Eve is super sweet. She's super awesome. Eve is a biological female who identifies as a gay man who's married to a biological female who also identifies as a gay man. Which is, it's complicated. And um, she had a expressed to the class about the term earlier. She said, um, you know, she drew the short straw, as she put it, and the two of them wanted to have a kid, so she's artificially pregnant. So that's Eve, and um, Eve and I get along great. We talk, she's funny, all that sort of stuff. Well, I'm in class, and one of the professors is talking with us, and he kind of just asked, hey, what do you do? And he's asking a few different people. He gets to me, and I said, well, I work pastorally at a church in Grants Pass. And Eve was sitting in the front left of me, and I, I, looking back, I noticed that she disconnected from the conversation at that point. She started really focusing on her homework and, and not participating or, or not, not interjecting like she normally would. And um, so at the end of class, everyone's packing up, I'm getting my stuff put away, and immediately Eve is there at my desk where I was sitting. And there's a lot of people around. Like, class just finished, people are just getting packed up, and she very loudly begins asking questions. And her first question was something along the lines of, what do you think about the dichotomy imposed by the Abrahamic covenant between people who live like me and people like you? And I said what any believer would say at that point. What? <laughs> no, I've, I've been in church for a while and no one's asked me a question like that before. So I didn't know what she was trying to get at, but very quickly, I began to realize by the question she was asking, she used a lot of biblical terms, so I'm like, I know some of these words, but she's asking them in a way where the point she was trying to make was, is the friendly person you've been to me just a facade, or is it genuine? And so I just asked her, I said, where did you hear that? Like, where, where, where did you get your information from? And what she said is, she has an uncle who's a pastor at a church, and he told her entire family, we're done with Eve. If she wants to do this, that's fine. She's out. We don't ever want to meet the baby. We don't ever want to meet the partner. We're done with her until she repents and turns away from that. And she's got other family members who are those kind people who have the signs that with the short and sweet little um, list of all the characteristics and attributes that God hates. And if you participate in any of them, hell for you, you know, that that group, that's her family. And so I realizing very quickly that her entire exposure to who God is and to who Christians are 
has been through the form and the lens of religious proselytizing. This, you need to stop doing this or God won't love you. You need to turn away from that or God won't bless you. And she's never actually experienced or been exposed to the gracious good newsing that Jesus always did. And I think a lot of the problem comes from a lot of people believe, even some Christians believe that the Bible is this the divinely inspired moral handbook full of examples for you and me to live our lives. That if we look at the examples and we follow after them, then God will love us, God will bless us, we will flourish. And if you don't, then God won't love you, God won't bless you, and you'll do poorly. The problem happens when you actually read your Bible. And you start looking at these people and you realize these aren't examples at all. No woman is growing up going, man, I hope I meet someone who will treat me like Abraham treated his wife. No one's going to say that. No one's going to say, man, I hope my son ends up like David. Because the problem is going to be when David has a friend who's got a cute girlfriend, David might go kill that guy, right? Almost everyone in the Bible is somehow involved in some sort of sex or murder scandal. Like they're not supposed to be an example for you and me. They're supposed to be mirrors. It's supposed to be people that you look at and you go, oh man, they're supposed to be for self-reflection and critique and for learning and going, God, what do you want to change in me? God, what are you doing? Here's the picture that the Bible's trying to paint. God loves to use incredibly broken people that you would otherwise say is completely hopeless, otherwise say they've got no chance. God loves to redeem and do amazing things with those people. Tim Mackey's a biblical scholar up at Western Seminary, and here's what he says. He says, being a follower of Jesus and a student of the scriptures is actually about having the habit of open-mindedness, to hear the scriptures say things I've never even thought to think before and to learn new things from the world around me. And you can get so much insight and learn so much about the world and how things function by when you actually read your Bible and see who God is, what God's character is, how his personality is, how he works with people, because that's going to filter everything you do. What you believe about God is going to change how you interact with people. What you believe about God's character is going to change how you raise your kids. It's going to change how you treat your spouse. It changes everything about you. It's super important. It changes how you answer questions like, can God be around sin? Or how does God feel about people who are currently living in sin? So I'm standing in class with Eve asking me these questions. And I'm not interested in debating covenants or redefining the Abrahamic covenant or trying to explain what actually went on there. So instead, I just went to Jesus. And I told her this story. And it's the story we're going to look at today. It's in John chapter 4, we'll read verses 6 through 30. If you have your Bible or your phone, you can turn there. And this is why I told her, it's a story about God meeting someone that he's got so much in store for. God meeting with someone who's very unlikely, who's ostracized, who's marginalized, who's left out. And God wanting to have a relationship with her. So starting in verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is 
that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So there's a few things you got to note that the Bible tells us right off the bat. First, it was the sixth hour. For you and me, we think six o'clock in the morning. It's cool. What a great time to do a lot of physical work. Like if you're going to go carry heavy jars, fill them with water, bring them back home, that's the time to do it. That's not how the Jewish people told time. They didn't have an arbitrary point in the middle of the night when the next day started. They had an arbitrary point in the morning that when the sun started to come up, that's the first, mor- first hour. And then second and third and fourth. And then the sixth hour is when the sun is way up high and it's hot. Kind of like yesterday at about five o'clock, I went on a walk and it was brutal. It's like 106. It's that kind of hot. So when this woman is coming to the well, she doesn't expect anyone to be there. And Jesus is sitting by himself. He's got no one else to ask for water. There's no one there. It's not the time to go to the well. There's three things that the Bible tells us about this woman right off the bat that makes this story shocking. The fact that Jesus is talking to her is so out of place and so crazy when you actually put the context of all that the Bible's telling us together. It's like, have you ever seen in a magazine or a newspaper the what's wrong with this picture? Like maybe it's a computer repair store and a guy is just beating a computer with a sledgehammer, you know, something like that. Or in a kid's book that I saw recently, there was this picture. Like, good luck uh, getting those lions to breathe there, Noah. It's kind of like, what's wrong with the pictures? There, it's two boys. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, what's wrong with this? That doesn't fit. It's crazy, right? Well, here's the three things we learn about this woman in this story 
that makes it crazy that Jesus was having this conversation with her. First of all, we learn she lived an absolutely morally scandalous life. She had five husbands, and the person that she's with right now is not her husband. Grants Pass, we like to think of as a pretty small town. Back in ancient days, this would be a giant, thriving civilization. Their world was way smaller. And so everyone knows everybody's name. Everybody knows everything about everyone. The reason that she doesn't get up in the morning with everyone else, because it would have been a community practice. Every morning, all the women in the community would get up, they would meet together at the well, they would draw water together, they would talk, there would be laughter, there would be sharing the news, there would be a little bit of gossip, there would be all that. Everything that happens on Facebook happened at the well. And so all the women are there doing this. This woman doesn't come when they're there. Probably because she doesn't want to hear all the remarks, all the things people are going to say about her, all the condemnation. Maybe it's not even safe for her. Maybe she's been involved with some women's husbands and, and it's an issue. So she comes in the middle of the day when there's not going to be a problem for her. She's going to come in the middle of the day when she's not going to be harassed or bullied. She's a woman that has been completely ostracized from her community. She's an outcast. So that's the first thing we know about her. The second thing that we know about her is that the Bible tells us in verse 9 that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Back all the way in 1 Kings, the northern and southern tribes of Israel were split because they had failed Yahweh and God allowed the Assyrians to come in and destroy their nation. And so there was some intermarriage that happened. There was some mixture of Judaism with paganism. And now this new religion, this new people group had begun to be born in Samaria. And they had their own temple. They had their own belief system, and they believed they were the chosen people. And now it had progressed to where the Samaritans as a people group were a constant reminder to the Jewish people of their religious failures and their political failures. And it was a hot button item to talk about. Like if you were going to discuss something and get in a fight with someone, it was their views on Samaritans religion versus the Jews religion. You just didn't, didn't breach it. You didn't talk about it. Don't go there. All right. So now you have Jesus, a Jew, talking with this Samaritan woman. Didn't happen. And then the third thing is in a patriarchal society, very different than ours, it would be so taboo for a man to be speaking with a woman in public that wasn't his wife or his daughter. It would vary out of place. That's why the disciples, when they show up, they're like, whoa, what's Jesus doing right now? What's he talking to this woman for? So right now, this is what you see. You have this moral social outcast in a social political group of people that's a cause of a lot of strife and tribulation and hardship for Jesus's own people, this very hated group of people, and she's at the bottom of the barrel of even that. And Jesus, when he comes to Samaria, he goes to the well and he sits and he waits to talk to her first. So can Jesus, can God be around sin? You see it all throughout the Bible. You see it starting in Genesis chapter three, the first time sin is introduced, Adam and Eve sin, and God immediately runs to them and says, where are you? Cain and Abel. When Cain kills his brother, God is there and goes, what have you done? And even right here, you have someone where you go, God wouldn't hang out with that person. God wouldn't want that person. That's the first person that Jesus goes to. And a common lie of the enemy that we tell ourselves, that we get told, is that we've done things or we've participated in things or we've been involved in things that now make us where God wouldn't want us anymore. 
that God wouldn't desire us, that God doesn't want a relationship with you, God can't possibly see any value or worth in you anymore. Common lie of the enemy that just simply isn't true. It's not biblical. You never see that in God's character. You never see that in anything Jesus ever says or does. And notice what Jesus offers her. So he says, if you would have asked me, I'd give you water and you'd never be thirsty again. And she says, oh, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. He gives her exactly what she thinks she needs because she's thinking if I could just get out, if I could get a different source of water for my family, for myself, I wouldn't have to come here. I wouldn't have to schedule my life around avoiding people. I wouldn't have to worry about seeing these people who are gonna say horrid things about me. If I could just have this, oh man, my life would be better. I'd be fulfilled. This is exactly what I need. That's where Jesus meets us. All these things that our soul tells us, oh man, if you just had this, your life would be better. Oh, if you just had this thing, you'd be fulfilled, you'd be complete, you would have made it. We tell ourselves that there's certain things that will do that. There are people who live their lives thinking, if I could just have more money, then I would be secure and oh, I'd be okay and everything would be so much better. But it's just not true. And the Bible tells us that there are times that come that there's tribulation, there's distress, there's hardship that no amount of money could ever take that away from you. No amount of money could ever fix or buy something back. There's nothing worldly that could ever redeem. But the Bible tells us that Jesus, for those of us that believe in him, that we know who's on the throne. And we're able to have a living hope that persists no matter what kind of hardship comes. And we're able to have a peace that passes all understanding, even when the world is falling apart, because we know God's got our back. We know Jesus hears us, he remembers us, he sees us, he knows us. A lot of us say, well, if I could just have a dad that did A, B, C, or D with me, if I just had a dad that was invested or didn't abandon or was involved, then my life would have been better. Not realizing that the Bible tells us that because of Jesus, we have access to a father who will never abandon us, whose affections will never let us go. You think if maybe if I was more desired, if I was more wanted, then I would be complete, then I'd be happy. The Bible tells us that Jesus desires us, wants us infinitely more than we could ever imagine. Or what about authority? A lot of people live their lives thinking, if I could just have more authority, more power, more say, more control, man, that would be it for me. Oh, that's all I want. And the Bible tells us that the destiny for people who follow Jesus, the destiny for human beings, what we were created to be, was to co-rule and reign with the creator of the universe over earth. You don't get more authority and power than doing co-anything with Jesus. Like, that's it. But everything else, all these other metrics that we use to, de to define status or if we've made it or if we're successful, they're all counterfeits. Whether it's money, it's being smart, whether it's having authority, all of those things will fail. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have enough intimacy or love. You'll never be smart enough. There's always gonna be someone who's smarter or better or stronger or has more things. It'll fail. And we know that because we look at the people who have achieved like John D. Rockefeller. He was the world's first billionaire. Like I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to look at my bank statement and see a billion dollars. Like That just seems like a fictional amount of money, right? And so he was asked in an interview, now that you have more money than anyone else in the whole world, what's next? What do you want? And he said, just one more dollar. That's all he wants, just one more, because it's not enough. You have Madonna, who at the 
peak of her career was getting accolade after accolade, award after award, nominated for everything. She was in a Vanity Fair interview and she was asked, how does it feel to be so successful, to have all these awards, to have all these people so excited? And she says, with every award, I'm happy for one minute and then I need more. You have Kurt Cobain, who, the singer of Nirvana, everything that he did turned to gold. Even the record that he was like, yeah, I want to go back to being a garage band, grassroots, just put it together, nonsense. It was his best top-selling album. He, at the peak of his career, realized this isn't it. This isn't what I thought it would be. This is empty. Jesus meets us in all the areas that our soul thirsts for, where we say, oh my gosh, I need more. I want this. If I could just have this, I'd be happy. Jesus meets us in that area, and that's what Jesus is saying to her. But what he offers you and me isn't a well that's stagnant water that you draw from. It's a spring. It's fresh. It's new. It's bubbling. You can't contain it. It's something that has to be shared with someone else. It's too much for you. And that's what we're called to do as Jesus followers, that if you believe in Jesus, if you've actually experienced him, if you're walking with him, there's part of you that's got to share that with someone else. And that's why the lie of the enemy doesn't make any sense that God wouldn't value you or love you because of what you've been through in your past, because there's other people that are seeking the exact same thing, that have fallen into the same traps, have the same addictions, have the same problems that now you're the person that God could use to speak through, to bring that to them. And so how does God feel about people who are currently living in sin? I think it's like a dad who's watching his kids head somewhere that's gonna hurt them, that breaks his heart, that you have like the prodigal son who he takes all of his money and he goes to a town and he says, this is gonna bring me fulfillment, this is gonna make me happy, this is gonna cause me to thrive, this is where I'm gonna be. And he goes there and it's empty and he leaves feeling totally dejected and he has this moment where he says, I just wanna go back to my dad. And I know he can never love me again as a son, he can never accept me in that way but maybe he'd accept me as a servant. And as he's coming, his dad sees him and runs to him. And he couldn't have been more wrong. And his dad holds him and says, my son who was lost is now found, who is dead is now alive, and he rejoices. How does God feel about those who are living in sin? I think our God knows our desperate desires, all the things in us that we feel like we so desperately need, and our God knows it's in him that we get it. And it breaks his heart when we try to find it in other things and think, oh yeah, this is gonna do it for me. But here's what I think happens. When we meet people like Eve or the woman at the well, our conversations can take the form of the one that Jesus has with her, but not the tone. You ever read tone into a text message or into an email where all of a sudden it sounds like they've said something that they didn't say? You know, like, they're like, you wanna go? And then you're like, yeah, we're gonna go right? Two very different ideas. I think we do that with God, where we read in his characteristics or his personality or his traits based on how we understand it. And this whole section right here where God is saying, hey, living water, and then he changes the subject, doesn't he? Where he says, go get your husband. Does that seem like a total shift? Jesus is still talking about the same thing. You think the problem is that the place you go get water, people harass you. If I could just get rid of that, then I'd be happy. Jesus is saying the root of your problem is your relationships, what you're seeking in men, what you're trying to find there. That, that's what I'm gonna be able to give you. That's what I'm gonna be able to fulfill for you. Jesus is talking about the same thing, but I think we get lost in the tone of it. <clears throat> so I think a lot of people, they read it like this, where they look in here and they say, Jesus 
shows up and says, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he goes, you're right you don't have a husband because you've actually had five husbands and the dude you're with is not your husband. Yeah, good job. You know what I think would happen? I think she's heard that her entire life. I think that she's heard that from every person she's ever interacted with and she just go, whatever, man, and leave. I think if she had, if Jesus had done that, there's a risk that she might push him in the well, right? Like she's not having any more of that. That's the religious proselytizing and that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus always did the gracious good newsing. Here's how I think that conversation went down. Because you know when you read a book, you miss all the nuance in conversation. You miss all of the pauses. You miss all of the way that things flow. I think there's a brief pause in between verses 18 and 19. That if you add that there, you have just a little section of breath. You get a little bit of humor and life in the story. Here's what happens. I think Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And he goes, yeah, okay. You're right in saying you don't have a husband because you've actually had five husbands. And the dude you're with isn't your husband. So you've said, well, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Like, it's kind of funny where she's like, okay, this is taking a turn but she's not wigged out about it. He's addressed her problem. He's addressed, hey, I know exactly who you are. And she's not going, "Uh uh-oh. She's actually engaging in conversation. So how do you know what God's character is actually like? Because I think Jesus, when he's talking here, it's in line with the rest of scripture where we find out that it's Jesus's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his goodness that draws us near. How do you know what God's character is like when you're reading the Bible or you're trying to interact with people or you're talking with others? I think you look at the Bible. I think that's where you find out where God's character is. On Wednesday nights, we went through Exodus chapter 34 this last Wednesday, and we were talking about how God reveals his own character, what God says to Moses about who he is. And it's actually the verse that's quoted more than 20 times in the Old Testament about explaining who God is. It's how all the Old Testament prophets knew God to be. Here's what it says. It's Exodus chapter 34 verses six through seven. It says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we love that first part, don't we? Where we hear about God being gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. But the last part we don't really care so much for. Like, what is that iniquity, visiting? I don't get that. Here's the tension that's in God's character. You have God who so desperately wants broken people to come to him. He so desperately wants to forgive people and bring people to him. But he can't just ignore the iniquity that they're they're living in because it hurts kids. And I don't think it's God saying, I'm going to punish the children because of the iniquity of their father. I think it's saying, your kids are going to punish themselves. You're going to have kids who have seen how their parents handle conflict, seen how their parents handle their lives and manage their time and do all of this and the lifestyle that they live in. And they're going to become bad photocopies of bad photocopies. And I'm going to treat my wife the way that I saw my wife got treated. And I'm going to allow my kids to be in the same situations that I got into And all of a sudden, it's this generational thing where kids get hurt and people don't do well and the community suffers. But here's what's so amazing about our God is he's saying sin can do that to the third or the fourth generation and it's gonna hurt. 
But our God's propensity, our God's ability to forgive sin goes to the thousandth generation. If someone offers you $4 or a grand, which one do you take? Without even thinking, the $1,000 is exponentially bigger. So whatever sin can do, our God is saying, I'm so much bigger than that. And the Old Testament prophets knew this. One of my favorite stories is in Jonah. And you have Jonah opens with God comes to Jonah and says, hey, go to Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. And they were an evil crew. They were the first people to really figure out how to do human torture to the extreme. They had figured out how to skin people alive. They had started working on putting hooks in people and dragging them around. These crazy, brutal, evil group of people. And Jonah, if you know the story, he runs away. But he doesn't run away because he's afraid of the Ninevites. We learn why he ran away. After God pulls him to Nineveh, kicking and screaming the entire way, after he talks about God in the city, the entire city repents. And they say, God, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to do things your way. And God relents and God forgives. And this is what Jonah does. He goes, God, isn't this what I said? I knew you were going to do that. It, didn't I tell you that you were a God who's gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and slow to anger? I knew you would forgive him. And that's why I didn't want to come. It's funny saying that verse with that tone. But that's how he was. He knew who God's character was. He didn't want this evil people to be forgiven, so he tried to flee, but that's not who our God's character is. That's not what our God is like. So here's what the woman does next. The woman, after Jesus brings up the men, after Jesus brings up really what the core of her problem is, she tries a little bit of misdirection. She goes, well, let's, let's talk theology. Hey, you, the temple, that's a big problem today. Are we supposed to worship here or are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem? And I love what Jesus does. He's not going to bother with talking covenants. He's not going to bother with talking theology. He's going to say, yeah, there's stuff going on right now. It's a little whack, but everything's going to change real soon. And here's what Jesus does. He points to himself. She says, I, I know Messiah is coming. And when he gets here, he'll explain it all to us. Jesus says, yeah, that's me. He doesn't point to a program. He doesn't point to a system or an experience. He doesn't point to, okay, you need to go do these things. Jesus says, there's living water because of Jesus. There's salvation because of Jesus. There's freedom past your history because of Jesus. Every other religion will do this thing where they say, hey, if you do these things, if you follow these steps, then you'll be able to meet God. Jesus is the only one who says, I'm God, come to meet you. John chapter four happens right next to John chapter three. And in John chapter three, you have Jesus sits down with a guy named Nicodemus. He's a morally upright, religious guy, very self-assured, very certain he's lived his life the correct way. And he goes, Jesus, what do I have to do to receive eternal life? Like he's certain Jesus is gonna go, bro, you got it. Oh man, you've nailed it. Jesus says, you would have to be born again. You'd have to start over. You would have to completely live your life over because his issue was pride. This woman, she's got no pride problem. She knows exactly where she's at. She knows exactly the issues that she's caused, all of the pain that she's caught up in. And so Jesus approaches her a completely different way. The Bible has shown us here there's as many different ways to share Jesus with people as there are people. Here's what Tim Keller says about evangelism. Evangelism is simply loving people around you and being involved in relationships while at the same time being absolutely courageously transparent 
about all that Jesus has done for you. Evangelism is this. It happens when you're involved in people's lives and you care about them and they know you love them and they know that things are going good for you that, or even things have gone hard for you and you've come through, through it and that you care about them, but you're also transparent about all that Jesus has done for you. There are people who love people and are invested in people, but they never get to Jesus. But there are people who are so into Jesus and just want to tell people about Jesus, but they're not invested in anybody's lives and nobody cares. You have to have both. You have to be someone who's invested in people's lives, interested in other people, be willing to ask questions, wrestle through things, and then being completely honest and transparent about all that Jesus has done for you. It's not about arguing theology. It's not about talking about covenants. It's about getting back to Jesus. Look real quick at verses 39 through 42, then we'll be done. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. There are too many people in our town, there are too many people that you know who are desperate for what only Jesus can provide. A God who is wanting to run to us in our brokenness and offer a way out. Here's what she says about him. She says, here's a man who's seen everything that I've ever done. She's saying, God has seen me at my worst. God's not confused. God knows exactly who I am, all that I've been through, all that I've done, and he still wants me. And she goes and tells everybody, and because she goes and tells everyone, they come to Jesus, and here's the brilliant part. They say to her, I don't even believe because of what you say anymore. That's where I started. I believe because I met him. I believe now because I know Jesus, and that's, what, that's the role we're supposed to play too. And this woman, she doesn't even know half the story. You and I know so much more than her because she has no idea what Jesus is going to do. Two times in this story, Jesus will mention the hour that's coming. And as she's sitting there, as Jesus is reaching through barriers of race and gender and morality, Jesus is talking about this hour that's coming, that everything is going to change. And you and I know in the book of John, whenever that hour is mentioned, it's talking about the cross. And Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, he'll say, I thirst. And yeah, it's a physical thirst, but it's also when Jesus is cut off from the source of all hope, of all joy, of all love, when he becomes separated from God so that broken people can come to him and say, Jesus, I want your life. Will you take my brokenness and will you give me your life and so that you and I can take it freely? Does God want more for Eve? Does God want more for the woman at the well? Does God want their life to change? Absolutely just like he does for you and me. The best part about salvation is being reminded that it's a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything right. You didn't say any of the right stuff. You didn't memorize any of the right things. It was freely given to you. And now you and I, all of us, we're in the same boat. We're in the same boat of following after a God who wants us all to change and be conformed more and more into the image of his son every single day. And we can't forget that. So, Partly the sign holders are right that God does hate sin. God hates so much that he's gonna handle it himself on the cross. 
So right now, we get to do what Isaiah tells us, that if you're thirsty, you can come and you can drink. And that without money, you can buy and you can eat. But here's what's interesting about how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah says, you can drink and then eat. You can be washed clean and then you can partake. But here's what our God says. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you get to partake of all of his goodness. You get to partake of all of his graciousness and of his mercy. And then you get to be washed clean and drink. And so maybe today, you're someone who is like the woman at the well, where you've lived a life, it's a little crazy. Maybe you feel ostracized. Maybe you feel like there's certain people groups you can't be around anymore because of choices or situations that you've put yourself in or been in. And you wanna start over. You wanna go team Jesus. If that's you, we have an opportunity today where you can meet Jesus in the waters and be baptized. And you can start over this day, moving forward with Jesus. Don't thirst after anything other than him. Come to the water today. So Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And because you've loved us first, that we know you love us. That we know that God loved us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't wait for us to say the right things or do the right things, but you offered this free gift on our behalf. Let's take the bread. I pray today that we would each be seeking how you would like for us to conform more into the image of your son, how you're trying to change us, how you're trying to move us. I pray that if there's someone in our lives that you've put on our heart, that we would become people who are courageously transparent about all that you've done for us to them while loving them in the way that you've loved us, to be people who are gracious, good news sharers, that our community would be overwhelmed by the believer's who have a spring of living water flowing out of them that's accessible to us because of what you gave on, on the cross. Let's drink of Jesus together. Will you guys stand with me for one final song?